Good morning, Servants Church. Glad to be with you guys again. I can't wait to see you see your faces so that I know when you're falling asleep when I'm preaching. I'm really looking forward to that in the future. Uh, today we're going to be in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, continuing our study through 2 Chronicles. So if you want to turn there, uh, that'd be great in your Bibles or on your phone or tablet or what have you. Uh, we're continuing to look at Hezekiah, who uh, in, in, during his time as reigning uh, as king, God brought a great revival to Judah. And so we're going to continue to look at that. I want to start by just reading verses 1, 12, and 26, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it together. So 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 1. Timer. Okay. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. And then verse 12. Also the hand of the Lord was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we are are thankful for uh, hopeful messages, hopeful stories in the history of Israel, especially knowing that so much of their history uh, was uh, was hard to, 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 to take in. We thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of our own stories, our own histories, Lord, you bring hope. Lord, you bring uh, encouragement. And I pray, Father, that in this season that we're in, where it's easy to get discouraged, where we're wondering what uh, might be happening next, we pray, Father, that you would bring us that fresh hope, that living hope that we find in Jesus. That, Lord, that we would desire uh, the same kind of revival that they were experiencing in this text. And that, Lord, you would use that to make us one. That we would be unified in a way that brings glory to you and goodness to us. Please, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So if you're following the Servants Church uh, reading plan, Bible reading plan, you would have read this morning Psalm 133, which I think was providential from God. Here's what it says. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What a great little psalm. Unity is both good and pleasant, according to that psalm. It's good because it's holy. Like Aaron's uh, uh, beard, like his, the oil that would be, uh, he would be anointed with, unity is holy. It's also pleasant. Like the dew that would, would fall on the mountains of Israel, and the mountains of Hermon, it's refreshing. There's a pleasantness there. And so when we talk about unity, we're talking about something that is positive, something we should pursue, something we should desire. In fact, unity is what Jesus prays for. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays, I pray that they, speaking of us, will all be one just as you and I are one, speaking of he and the Father, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us that the world would believe you sent me. 
So Jesus prays for unity, the kind of unity that's good and pleasant, because in that unity, when we are walking in that unity, it says something about, it makes, it makes the truth about him more credible. But also it's important for us to see, and we're going to see this this morning, that unity is actually the fruit of revival. We know the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that we should uh, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, that when we become Christians, we're put into God's family and we have a unity that we need to make sure that we don't mess up. But often what happens is we tend to be disunified or we tend to be uh, too self-centered, and so we don't actually experience the unity the way that God wants us to, in a way that gives credibility to the gospel. The good news is, as we're going to see today, that unity, this kind of unity, can be restored. It is restored by revival. And it's interesting, in our, in our, our chapter today, we're going to see that Hezekiah seeks to unify not just Judah, the two tribes that are in Judah, but also the other ten tribes, or at least what are left of the ten tribes in Israel. He seeks to unify them around the Passover. Now, if you don't know this, the Passover uh, is, uh, was the first feast in the Jewish calendar. Uh, so the, sort of the, the, as soon as the Jewish New Year would start, they had 14 days to prepare for Passover, and then there was this massive Passover feast. But also it was meant to be this time of looking back to, to God redeeming Israel out of Egypt, getting them out from being slaves and bringing them through the desert and into the promised land. So it was a time for them to do this. And it was also a time for them to remember what God did to bring them out of the land, which was God had bought, brought plagues to Egypt so that Pharaoh would let uh, uh, Israel go. And that last plague was the death of the firstborn. And God had said clearly through Moses, here's what I want uh, my people to do. I want them to get a perfect lamb, to slay that lamb, and apply the blood of that lamb to the doorposts of their home. And then when the angel of judgment, the angel of death comes, he will pass over the homes that have applied the blood of the lamb. And so in a very real way, Passover was not trying to re, being redone, redoing that sort of uh, blood sacrifice that would um, uh, allow them to not be uh, destroyed by this angel of death. But it was about remembering what God had done. You might say it was about reapplying the blood of that sacrificial lamb. And so here we have in chapter 30, Hezekiah is wanting to unify God's people around this feast of Passover. And as we look at this, we're going to see something about unity. We're going to learn three specific things about unity that are really, really important if we're going to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, if we're going to pursue the unity of the faith. So here's what we're going to see. The first thing we see today is unity requires repentance. Look at verse 1. Uh, we, or actually look at verse 2. So he sends this letter out. It says in verse 2, For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. Keep that in mind. For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. And so they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. 
Now, if you go back to chapter 29, looking at verses 17 to, to 19, here's what we read that says that they, they began to sanctify uh, uh, on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, uh, they came into the vestibule of the Lord. They began to sanctify the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. Now, this is referring to... Uh, the fact that the priests were trying to sanctify the temple. If you remember uh, uh, from last week, uh, Hezekiah leads the way to, to get the temple cleaned out and that for them to, to re, be recommitted to the, the Lord their God. Now in doing this, what happens is they go past the time that Passover meant to be. It's supposed to start on the 14th of the first month. They don't finish cleaning it out until the 16th of the first month. Now, this is important because as we read those first five verses of chapter 30, we get a sense that Hezekiah and the people that he was involved with, the leaders he's involved with, had been probably motivated by two scriptures. One of them would have been Numbers chapter 9. Listen to this. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. Numbers chapter 9, verses 9 to 11 says, This was the Lord's reply to Moses. Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people now or in future generations are ceremonially unclean at Passover time because of touching a dead body, or if they are on a journey and cannot be present at the ceremony, they may still celebrate the Lord's Passover. They must offer the Passover sacrifice one month later at twilight on the 14th day of the second month. So they were probably thinking, okay, there is this kind of proviso that if we miss the first one, God in His grace allows us to come back and do the second one. But here's the other verse they're probably thinking about. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, it says this, You may not sacrifice the Passover in just any of the towns that the Lord your God has given you. You must offer it only at the designated place of worship, the place the Lord God chooses for His name to be honored. Sacrifice it there in the evening as the sun goes down on the anniversary of your exodus from Egypt. Roast the lamb and eat it in the place the Lord God chooses. Now, what was the place that God chose? Jerusalem, where, where the, the capital of Judah. So you, you get a sense here that when um, Hezekiah and his leaders are wanting to call all of Judah and Israel back to Jerusalem, they're saying, wait a second, we missed the Passover time. But God in His grace has given us a chance to redo this. But it must be redone the way God says in Jerusalem. Now this is important. Because when we're talking about repentance, especially the fact that unity requires repentance, we need to understand that repentance is a return to God's Word. That we go back to God's Word. One of the things that, that uh, is, is concerning is when people are claiming repentance, that, or I'm sorry, claiming revival in their movement, but there isn't this indication that people are hungry to hear what God says. That people are pursuing to go back to do what God says. Because in real revival, there's a return to God's word. And so this is what Hezekiah is leading the people towards. Now look at verse 6. It says, then the runners, these are those who are taking the letter, went through all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king, saying, children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to uh, the remnant of you who have escaped the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. 
So now what's going on is, remember, the ten tribes of Israel, uh, that is all that all except for Judah and Benjamin that are in the northern kingdom. At this point, while Hezekiah is the king of Judah, the, the, the Israel, the other ten tribes, have actually collapsed. And that superpower, Assyria, that we mentioned last week, has come in and taken the majority of those people into captivity. And yet, here's Hezekiah thinking, okay, there's a, there's a few people left, probably the poorest of the poor, uh, th- those people that are left. We can call them to come and join us. But that's the situation that they find themselves in. Verse 8 says, Now, do not be stiff-necked as your father's word but were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who led them into captivity, so that you, so that they may come back to this land, for the Lord Your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. I want you to think about this. As this letter is going throughout the land, there's a real specific call here. Now, I want to be clear. This is not, this letter is not a promise that, hey, come to do Passover and you'll never experience anything painful in your life again. That's not what this promise is. What this is is a promise that listen, come and, and, and serve, come and, and celebrate Passover with us. Come back to what God says about how He wants to be worshipped, and you will experience His grace and mercy. See, this is a really important thing, especially when we talk about repentance. Sometimes we we, we talk about repentance as if, okay, you repent, and then God will do His bit. So it's kind of like we see God responding to our repentance, but actually, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches is that repentance is our response to God. It's our response to God's holiness, goodness, purity, but also it's our response to God's mercy and grace. Why would you turn back to a God that's going to snuff you out? If, If God isn't as merciful and gracious as he shows himself to be in his word, you're never going to be motivated to repent. And so repentance isn't just kind of like this, you're horrible, you're bad, you better stop doing what you're doing. Those things are true, but that's not what's going to motivate us to turn back to God. What motivates us to turn back to God is this great promise of grace and mercy. It's His character. That's, how, that's what always motivates real repentance. Now this idea of, of, of suffering when we do bad and being rewarded when we do good, we're going to cover that in our podcast this week because it's really important that we recognize that this is not just some absolute thing like I do good, God blesses me, I have prosperity, I do bad, and God curses me. It's, it's, it's not quite that simple. So we're going to talk about suffering and God's people in the podcast this week. But coming back to this point we're making, unity requires repentance. Look at verses 10 to 12. It says, so the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulon. So they've really gone into Israel quite far. But they, these these are these people from these tribes, they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves, keep in mind that word, humbled, and came to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was on Judah to give them a singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Now here's what you have. 
You have a situation when, where uh, Hezekiah is leading his people. He's leading Judah. He's coming back to him afresh. And what happens? Some people go, whatever. And some people humble themselves and turn back to God. Now, this is a really important thing to understand because when we talk about repentance, repentance is what identifies us as God's people. You see, people can, uh, unbelievers can profess faith. Trust me, I lived in America for 34 years. It happens all the time. People can say that they believe in Jesus and then live as if he has no authority over their life. It happens all the time. It happens here as well. People who are believers can do horrible things. Real believers, not just professing believers, can do horrible things. So sinlessness is not what identifies us as believers. Just professing faith isn't what identifies us as believers. What identifies us as believers is we're the ones that are willing to turn at God's word back to him. That's what identifies us. That we want to return to God's word, we want to respond to God's character, and we want to be identified as God's people, therefore we repent. Now this is not just some sort of Old Testament thing. You might be thinking, gosh, it's kind of heavy and sounds like the Old Testament God. No, this is a New Testament thing as well. L- listen to this. There's a situation in the Corinthian church where they saw themselves as so sure of God's grace that they were allowing people in their church to live in open sin and they were glorying it. Aren't we so gracious? In fact, there was a situation in 1 Corinthians 5 where there's actually a man who is, who is in a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. I think that's what it was. I know that's crazy, but that's what was going on. And the church was like, oh, that's all right. There's grace with God. Aren't we so gracious? Aren't we so wonderful? That's how they were treating the situation. Here's how the Apostle Paul wrote to them. Listen, he says, your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing the, the wicked uh, person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for you. Now, a, a couple of things important to think about this. Obviously, Paul's showing how Christ is our Passover lamb, the one that we look back to, the one that we remember, the one whose blood we reapply. But he's also using another illustration or or talking about this idea of yeast also connects to Passover. Because one of the things that God had said uh, to Israel when they had their first Passover was you need to make bread without yeast. There can be no yeast in the bread. And it was the, the, one of the purposes of that was it needs to be quick. You don't have time to let it rise. You need to make some quick bread. You need to eat and you need to go. You need to get out of this place of slavery. And so basically the tradition, even to this day when Jews celebrate the Passover, they have this game with their kids where they go throughout the whole house getting rid of the yeast. And it's a way to say we want to get rid of the sin in our life, the things that don't please God, so that we, because he's, he's the one who's redeemed us. Now it's interesting because sometimes as Christians, people who know that we're saved uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we can think that somehow grace gives us permission to keep on sinning. It's no big deal. But actually, it's a, it's a bigger deal because the, the God who's, who's not just delivered us from a slavery uh, to another country, another people group, God has delivered us from slavery to sin. 
so that we can turn away from it. Yes, we won't be perfect. We will still fall this time uh, until, the, until we see God face to face. But we can turn away from sin. We can repent because of what Jesus has done. And so it's important that we see this is a, not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing that we are called to turn. Here's what's interesting as well. When, when Paul writes this to the Corinthian church, and they, they, they do respond, we know from two Corinthians that they respond. But in fact, what happens is they realize, oh man, we were being way too loose about sin. And so they boot this guy out because he obviously doesn't want to repent. But what happens is he wants to repent later on, and they don't want to let him back in. And then Paul has to say, no, 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 that guy's repented. He's already suffered enough. Bring him back in. Welcome him in as a brother. So this isn't about going, you're the baddies, you're the goodies. You guys have to go. You guys get to stay. It's not about that. It's about us recognizing that what God's provided for our redemption should motivate us to walk in repentance. That we, we, we keep short accounts with God. We turn from our sin quickly. If we're going to be unified, there's going to have to be repentance. We're not going to experience the joyful unity that Psalm 133 talks about that these guys experienced in this chapter unless we're willing to walk in repentance. Again, this is not about perfection, but it is about progress. It is about continually saying, God, I've, I've, I've failed again. In fact, let me say this before we move on to the next point. I think for us as Christians, I think I'm thinking of you guys at Servants Church, you guys who are a part of Servants Church, most of your failings aren't doing these kind of quote-unquote big sins. Most of our failings are neglecting good things, things that we know that God would have us do, things that God has said are for our good. We neglect those good things, and we're so slow to repent about them. We're so slow to turn away. God calls us to turn away. If we want the joyful unity that's talked about here, that kind of unity is a fruit of revival, we're going to have to walk in repentance. Now, look at verse 13. We'll come to the second thing about unity. Unity seeks the Redeemer. Unity seeks the Redeemer. It says, Now people, many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. This is the Passover. They arose and they took away the altars that were in Jerusalem and they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought the offerings to the house of the Lord. Now, it's kind of hard to understand this, but follow me with this, okay? The the picture is all these people have come from Israel, all of Judah's one uh, of like-minded, they're single-hearted to do this. They come together to, to, to keep this feast, and they begin to, the first thing they begin to do is say, look, we know that the temple's been uh, cleared out, but all this junk that's still laying around, all these false areas of, uh, of worship, if we're going to do this, let's do this right. And they gather, the people gather all the junk that's around the temple and around Judah, and they chuck it into the garbage heap that's in Kidron. They get rid of it. And then they begin to, to offer their, or, or to slay their sacrificial lambs, which is what the Bible uh, would say. This is what the, 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 the um, the instructions for Passover were that the kind of head of each household would have one lamb for the household and he would slay that perfect lamb and then give it to the priests to then offer it. And so they're doing, I mean, these people are, are enthusiastic. They were authentically committed to celebrate God's redemption. 
We're, we're serious about this. We really want to see this happen. And in fact, they're so serious about it that the priests and Levites are ashamed because they hadn't been, as we saw last week, as serious about it as they needed to be. So what happens? Look at verse 16. So they stood, now this is the priest, the priest stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God, and the priest sprinkled the blood received from the hand of Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore, the Levites had charge of to slaughter the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. See, one of the things that happens, and it'll be clear to you in the next verse or so, is that these people that have come, probably specifically the people that have come from Israel, they had not done the, the ceremonial cleaning or cleansing of themselves to prepare for the Passover. Could have been because there wasn't enough time. Could have been because they just didn't realize this because they'd been in an apostate nation for so long. They weren't sure what they were supposed to do completely. So even though they were authentically committed to celebrate God's redemption, they were not ceremonially prepared to celebrate God's redemption. And if you know anything about the scriptures, the Old Testament law, there's a need to be ceremonial clean, that God sets off these, these rules. And so in a sense, if we were to stop there, we would expect what was to happen next was that that's it, no more sacrifices. But what's happened is these people come, they're, they're authentically committed to, to, to celebrate the Passover. The priests are ashamed that they're not as committed. So what do they do? They say, look, we're gonna, you, you guys haven't cleansed yourself rightly, but we're going to go ahead and slay these lambs for you in your stead. It's not exactly what the law says, but we still want to fall through. We want to seek after God. We really want to know God through the Passover feast. So what happens next? I love this bit. Verse 18. So it says, For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Issachar, had not uh, cleansed themselves. Yet they ate the Passover contrary to what is written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart, notice, to seek God, the Lord God of their fathers, though he is cleansed according to, uh, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And what does it say in verse 20? And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and what? Healed the people. Now, now we, we, I told you, remember that word humbled. And then I pointed out this word seek. And then we have this word healed. Why? Because the author of Chronicles is wanting the readers to think back of the promise from 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Listen. Where God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. They're actually experiencing this. Now, I want to be clear about something, because sometimes we can use this promise to say, God, do the same thing in Great Britain. Nothing wrong with praying that. But that promise isn't really for us. It was for Israel. But it is, there is a principle there that we need to think about. Especially in this specific context. They weren't doing everything exactly the way they were supposed to do. But because their hearts were saying, God, we really want to get right with you. We really want to walk with you. They were trying to seek their Redeemer. What happens? When Hezekiah prays, God joyfully answers. You see, they, weren't, they were authentically committed, but they weren't you know, rightly prepared. But their Redeemer was prepared to listen to Hezekiah's prayer and to meet them where they're at. Isn't that amazing? That's mercy. 
so much for this uh, accusation that there's no, uh, the God of the Old Testament is, is a God of wrath and anger. This is mercy and grace. This is God wanting to restore stubborn people that had mostly gone into captivity. I, I want to read you guys this verse from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Christ who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. That's by Jesus' stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. There's a lot of people uh, right now who need healing. Obviously, the obvious is those who have COVID-19. And we do pray that God would, would uh, help with that healing, uh, both naturally and supernaturally. But there are others as well that get forgotten about. People that are suffering with cancer, struggling with heart disease. People have all kinds of illnesses that, that don't get sought after or don't get kind of a lot of attention because they're not right now COVID-19. And we need God to heal. But what this scripture shows us and what we just read in 2 Chronicles is that the healing that we need more than anything is not a physical healing because neither 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 nor 2 Chronicles nor Isaiah 53 that Peter is quoting has to do with physical healing. It has to do with spiritual healing. You see, you might be watching this today and you might be wrestling with the fear of death, the fact that you have COVID or you might get COVID and you're worried about this and understandably so. I mean, we feel for you. It's a big deal. We have families in our fellowship that are going through the same thing right now. But you need to know that what you need more than physical healing is spiritual healing. You need to be in right relationship with the Lord. You need to be in right relationship with your Creator. You need to know that He doesn't just want to be your Creator, but your Redeemer. And you need to recognize that that Redeemer is Jesus Christ Himself. It's by His stripes, by what He suffered through His death and resurrection, or through his death for us, that's what pays for our healing, provides for our healing. See, unity is about us seeking the Redeemer. It's, 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 it's good for us to pursue like-mindedness, to be on the same page about direction as a church or about as a group or as about as a ministry. Those are good things that we need to pray towards and pursue. But it's essential for unity that we are unified around wanting to seek our Redeemer. We want to know our Redeemer better. We want to declare that He lives and draw close to Him. That's what they were doing here. Now, this last bit, verses 21 to 27, we see the third thing I want to talk about. Unity. That is, that unity grows with response. Though this is a revival that God's bringing, He's doing this as we saw last week in a really kind of short amount of time. It's not a one-time thing. It's not just some instantaneous change and they kind of stay in that position. There's something that they also need to grow into. Look what happens. Verse 21. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites... And the priest praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught uh, the, the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate 
throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confessions uh, to the Lord God of their fathers. So, So what's happening? They're actually celebrating the feast. And I want you to think about how this is happening, okay? There's obviously, this is happening in a very worshipful way. I mean, they're singing loud praises to God. This is a celebration time. They have repented. They have turned back to God. So as we said, repentance is absolutely required if they're going to experience the real revival. So they have done that. But as they've done that, what are they also doing? They're celebrating. God, you're so good. You're so amazing to bring us back together as one nation, if even for the small, short time. They're rejoicing. But also, listen, it's not just a worshipful type of fellowship. It's also a very informed type of fellowship. They're not just kind of caught up in the exuberance of the moment. They're being taught, it says, the good knowledge of the Lord. That's what Hezekiah praises the Levites for. These Levites who have been slow to do their job, finally now, as we're seeing this kind of revival, this unifying revival happen, they're realizing, man, these guys are hungry for Scripture. We need to give them Scripture. We need to teach them the good knowledge of God. We need, they need to know the God that's redeemed them. And they're doing that. It's a good model for us. If we're going to grow in unity, we need to grow in a worshipful and informed fellowship. Can you see how if, if we're just one or the other, it's not going to work very well? If we're just worshipful, like if we can really, and we need to grow in this, man. I'll tell you, I think Servant Church needs to grow in this maybe more than the other. We need to grow in an expressive, authentic worship towards God. That we are just celebrating how good our God has been to us. How faithful He is to meet us where we're at. But we also need to be the kind of fellowship that knows we need to be informed. That we don't want to just wait till we feel something. We want to learn what God says. Now, if we're just informed and we're never responding with, with a worshipful fellowship, something's wrong. But if we have a, a real worshipful fellowship, we're all excited, but we don't know who we're actually worshiping, something's wrong. We need both. Scripture says this, listen. One, again, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk that you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love this. It's a great metaphor for us wanting to grow in truth. Because here it is, uh, this picture of a nursing mom nursing her child. And that child wants nothing more than mother's milk. So hungry for it. And any, you know, one of my favorite things to do with my kids was to watch them uh, be fed by their mom. Just the kind of connection between child and mother was beautiful. And so in that hunger, though, there was a, a, there was meant to say, keep, since you've tasted that the Lord is good, keep hungering for him. That's the idea. And how do you keep hungering for him? We want to hear, we want to hear the, the word of God. We want to feed on spiritual milk. Now look at verse 23. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. Now, we have long church services, if you haven't noticed. I mean, they're a bit shorter now that they're online. But when we get together, man, these things are like two hours plus. Not what the norm is. But you can imagine having that two-hour service, and then everyone lingers. Maybe this will happen when we we can meet here at this building. Everyone lingers and says, no, let's just keep going. And turns into a four-hour service, a five-hour service. Then it says, you know what? Let's all call in and take our annual leave. And we're going to take the next week just to seek Jesus together. In a sense, that's what they're doing. They said, let's continue with another week of fellowship. They're hungry for this. 
But notice what happens, okay? They do this, and the, to be able to do this, they need more food. They need probably more animals for sacrifice. And so it says in verse 24, For King Hezekiah, king of Judah, uh, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls, seven thousand sheep, and the leaders gave uh, to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. And the whole assembly of Judah rejoiced, also the priests and the Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, and I want you to notice this, and the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, and those who dwelt in Judah. Now, some of these people are really obvious. We know, okay, the people that live in Judah, those are included. The priests and the Levites, those are included. The, 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 the people from the other tribes of Israel, those are included. But you know who the sojourners are? That word specifically means those who would be kind of like foreign residents. In other words, they would be those that were not Israelites, but they've lived in Israel. And as the scripture has said, they can be invited to the Passover feast if they cleanse themselves. They, were, they made the trek to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And what's happening? They are included in this joyful celebration. This is, again, how we grow in unity. Unity grows as we respond to who God is with a joyful and inclusive celebration. Now, this is tough, isn't it? It's tough in lockdown. How do we be inclusive when we're in lockdown? How does that work? Well, a couple of practical things to think about. Have you ever realized why you have a church directory? Yes, in case you need someone's number, but how about to pray for those people? <coughs> Consider doing something radical. Consider looking at the church directory, finding someone that you, you're not sure who it is, and taking the risk by giving them a ring or sending them an email, just say, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm not sure if we've met or not. Forgive me if we have, but I just wanted to see how you're doing. Now, I know you're thinking, I know you're thinking, John, that's nuts. There's no way I can do that. That's so awkward and uncomfortable. That's just, it's, it's not very British. This is not what we do. I know you're thinking this. And guess what? I feel the same way. I mean, even as the pastor of the church, as I'm kind of going through the directory, I feel so nervous calling somebody that I probably actually have never called before. Maybe I've talked to them on the phone because they've called me, but I've never called them. It's an awkward thing to do. Take an initiative like that. But do you realize that's exactly what Jesus did for us? Jesus took initiatives. We were strangers to him. And what did he do? He came to us. He took the initiative for the relationship. I want to read to you a command, and you might wonder why I'm giving you this command, but listen to this. This, this is, again, 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You see how Peter puts together uh, these things, this fervent love and being hospitable? You say, okay, well, how, again, how do we be hospitable? You know what the word hospitable means? It literally means, the Greek word for hospi hospitable means loving strangers. It means reaching out to people that you don't know yet to include them in fellowship. That's exactly what it's about. You see, we grow in unity as we are proactively, intentionally pursuing relationships with other people. Now, I know this is tough. We are, this is one of the things that we are even praying about as a leadership team. Because even as lockdown restrictions, hopefully by July, slow down, the truth is we're not even sure how we're going to bring people together. 
Or how do we make sure that if there's small groups or something that nobody gets left out? These are big things that we're praying about. I know it's tough, but it doesn't mean it's still not what we're supposed to do. That this is not how, this is how we are to grow in unity. Lastly, verses 25 to 27. I'm sorry, 26 and 27. It says, So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And notice this. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. Isn't that an amazing thing? That the author of Chronicles says, look, at the end of this great unifying Passover celebration, at this expression and experience of legitimate revival among God's people, what happens? The priests bring a blessing, and the author of Chronicles is so confident this is of God, he says, and God heard and was pleased, basically. That's an amazing thing to think about. Now, This is what we mean by uh, unity grown in response. The response is an authentic and authoritative blessing. It's not just random people saying, bless you. This is the priest. This is their job. Now, I want to close with this. I close with a thought. Many of us have been blessed by uh, the UK blessing that we've seen, the kind of uh, collaborative effort to to sing. Uh, Tim Hughes, I think, is the one who organized this, to sing the song of blessing over the United Kingdom. There's been similar things happen in, in America and actually all over the world. And I love the motive behind that. I love this idea of, of wanting to communicate to, to God's people, but also just to the, the nations that, listen, God is not against us. He's for us. He wants to bring blessing to us. I, I believe that is a good motive to have. But I want to be honest. I think it's a bit premature. Because what we see in Scripture is blessing comes... The blessing is pronounced not over just people who are randomly doing what they want or have nothing to do with their uh, faith in God. The priestly blessing that we are called to give to each other, you, you might say, and that the priests were called to give to us, that was reserved for those that had come back to the Lord. So now, again, I'm not saying don't listen to it or don't like it on Facebook. Don't worry, we're not going to start rioting on this or something. But I do think it's important for us to recognize. To give a message, God just wants to bless you doesn't fit with the tenor of Scripture. He does want to bless us. He wants us to experience an authentic and authoritative blessing. If I say, bless you, not much is going to happen. If God says, bless you, great things are going to happen. But that comes as we grow in unity. And it's got to be a unity that is seeking after the Redeemer and a unity that's walking in repentance. That's when the blessing comes. So let's do this. Let's unify as repentant believers, those who, because we're so sure of God's grace and mercy, we want to make, we want to turn quickly from our sin. Let's be the kind of fellowship that, that is, is inclusive because we know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that the gospel is so sufficient for our forgiveness and for our position with God that we can be open and confess our sins to each other. Let's be the kind of people that do pronounce blessing, not on the perfected ones, but on the ones that have turned to God that know that only Christ can save them. Let's pronounce a blessing on one another that way. And let's keep our faith in this gracious Redeemer 
who's made this possible for us. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray that you would help us to do just this, Lord. We want to experience authentic revival. So, Lord, would you put your finger on the areas where we need to turn and repent? Father, we actually know that unity is something that uh, we've been given as a position as born-again believers, but also, Lord, it's something that we need to keep and something that we need to grow in. And so, Father, we pray you'd bring a revival to us where we'd be quick to turn from our sin and quick to turn to you and desire to grow. Lord, if we're all looking to you, we'll be unified. So, Father, we pray you would do this for us. And, Lord, we do want to think about uh, families in our, our fellowship that are struggling with sickness We want to keep praying for Bernie and Sandy and the things that they're struggling with. We want to pray for the Dean household as they're uh, wrestling through and and, uh, (coughs) looking to recover from COVID-19. Lord, we want to pray for others that have been exposed. We thank you so much for bringing uh, Neil and Valin and Aaron through that. Thank you so much that they're healthy and and doing so much better again. Father, we think of others too that are are, are cut off and, and by themselves, are, are, are feeling quite isolated. Lord, you know who they are. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would meet them where they're at. Help us to reach out to those people, to do whatever we can to, to be connected. Lord, we, we are here saying we are so thankful for the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world for our Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that he's provided Father, we thank you for the righteousness that we have because of him, that right standing with you because of him. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we would want to celebrate that, that that would motivate our repentance and that we would experience real revival. Please, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. See you soon.